Hi, I'm Nikki LaCroce, and you're listening to the Who the Fuck Podcast. Inquisitive, authentic, unapologetic. A show designed to create connection, fuel compassion, activate change, and figure out just who the fuck you are. Hey gang, you're listening to the latest episode of the Who the Fuck podcast. Today we're joined by Mona Stevens, and Mona's currently building her business as a transformational tutor as her life has taught her a myriad of valuable lessons. In learning from her own highs and lows, Mona decided to share her journey as a way to help others, and I'm excited to learn more about her today. So Mona, why don't you share a little bit about yourself with our listeners before we get started? Hey everybody, so like Nikki said, my name is Mona Stevens. Um, I'm 26 years old. I'm living out in Arizona right now, but I'm originally from a small town um, in Pennsylvania called Oxford, and I'm just excited to be here. My life's been a journey, and I can't wait to share some of the lowest points with you all so you can get to some of the breakthroughs um, that I was able to have, like running a nonprofit and things like that. That's awesome. So you mentioned you're from a small town in Pennsylvania. I'm actually from Pennsylvania. And from like northeast of Philadelphia in the suburbs, where's Oxford? Oxford is about an hour and a half from Philadelphia. It's closer to the Mason-Dixon line. Oh, okay. Gotcha. All right. There you go. Uh, Well, I know that. I I mean, I know the general vicinity very well, um, having grown up outside of Philadelphia in the suburbs and going to D.C. a lot. So it's an interesting little connection in in that east coast way it's definitely something interesting when you leave the area like of the northeast i think there's like a very different vibe to things do you find that as well yeah like when i first got to arizona and people would wave at me that i had no idea who they were i was like what do you want to sell me like what's happening and then people would be like yeah i just need that report whenever you can get it and i'm like what where's when's the deadline yeah yeah no it's uh, that's so funny that you said that as an example because i remember one of the first weeks that i was at my job when we moved to the west coast i had something come up i like so i'm a software product manager by day and i had a deadline and one of the development managers asked for it and i said okay i'll try to get that for you tomorrow and he's like no like in the next week or so and i was like what do you mean like i don't understand you don't need it urgently right now (laughs) um so it's it's funny that there's definitely like a sense of like you can pace yourself a little not like bleed yourself dry trying to like go as fast as you can as hard as you can every single time too so it's like i think there's that flexibility that's really nice sometimes but then also like to your point it lacks the structure so like you're like I need somebody to find a balance of this where like you have a deadline but maybe it's not as abrupt as you know one that I previously would have had as opposed to like fly by the seat of your pants and just finish it when you finish it which just sounds like a little (laughs) bit of like what threw you for the loop yeah I'm like I'm used to like right now, right now. Yeah, totally. It is just it's it's totally different in that way. So when did you move to Arizona? About three years ago. Oh, cool. Same for us moving to uh, Seattle. So it's definitely been like a a journey for ourselves to really adapt to a new place and feel that sense of home and building a community. And so is that something that like in the last three years, you feel like you've been seeking to do and that like the path that you've gone on, on your emotional and mental sort of journey around your life and reconstructing things in a way that felt right for you? Did you feel like the move was an empowering thing for you to do to achieve that? It definitely was an empowering thing to do that because it's like 
every one of my family members except for one, they all live in that same little area, like Chester County. Nobody's ever really left Chester County. And for every all my trauma and for everybody that knew me to be in that spot, for me to be able to leave after I just had worked on myself and to be able to embark on a new journey in a place where nobody knew who I was, I could be who I wanted to be, who I was becoming more freely without people having to be like, oh, you've changed. What's going on? Like, And then try yeah. to drag me back down to who I was. I love that you just explained it that way because I feel very similar that moving away from really everything that I knew really forced me to discover who I am. And in ways where I didn't have to feel like I wasn't meeting somebody's expectations of me. And it was more about my own expectations of myself and what I truly value and what I care about. So it's become increasingly apparent to me over the years how much our experience in growing up creates these narratives that we tell ourselves. And that's often based on, you know, societal and family inputs to your point around like, oh, well, you've changed. And it's like, yeah, but that's okay. You know, change is good. And so we get a lot of inputs as our sense of self is developing and we're maturing. So when you talk about on your site and through your Instagram posts about breaking generational shackles, are there specific moments or ways of thinking that stand out to you, which like you feel really intent on not repeating? Yeah, there's a few. There's a few. But the major one I would say is self-love. And I didn't really even know what it was that until I looked back at how I watched my mom have relationships, how I've had watched my dad have relationships, how I watch my sisters and everybody around me. It's like generationally in my family, at least my nuclear family, and just going back a little bit, they didn't have self-love, like a strong sense of who they were. Like growing up, I watched my sister in abusive relationship after abusive relationship to the point where one of her boyfriends, which was the father of my niece, Ajene, he killed her like as a baby. And that was something, I don't want to say it was normal. That was the most extreme thing that happened. But every relationship after that was toxic. And my nieces and nephews would come live with us a lot. But then even the relationship I had modeled to me growing up, my mom and my dad, it was just this very toxic, constantly arguing, constantly fighting and fighting like my dad would yell at my mom like two inches from her face. And he would do that with me too. So I know like he's spitting on her. And like my childhood, the one thing I can remember the most of was going and sneaking into my mom's room after arguments and just holding her and her sobbing and holding on to me and me wishing I could take away that pain. So growing up, I saw so much toxicity in the relationships, not just that my family had, but because we were poor. It's like I saw that in a lot of other families around me that were friends with my mom and dad because they would go through their arguments. It was like drama was the biggest thing. And growing up, I real or after I grew up and I got in my own abusive relationships, I realized 
it's not just like when I was younger, I thought because my sister would always date black men and my dad is black that and I grew up in a very white neighborhood that maybe white people just didn't act that way. So I got in my own toxic relationships and I realized it is not like a color thing. It is literally a self-love thing. Like I treat my, I don't have self-worth. So that's the biggest thing for me. It was the biggest shackle that I had to transmute or to break was not having enough love and care for myself that I needed it from somebody else. So I would stay in these relationships, even though they didn't serve me. Yeah, that's so much to think about, Mona. You know, you mentioned a lot of things that I, I, I almost like, I, I'm like, where do I start? First of all, thank you for being so open and honest about that. And just the fact that like I can tell that you've done the work because of how you're speaking about it. It's something that I feel I've been able to execute better in my own life as I've grown as well, which is this concept that I've probably mentioned on other episodes because I talk about therapy a lot, but this idea of naming it. I remember when my friend Jamie said this to me before I was back in therapy and she was saying her therapist had said to her, like, these things are always happening. And part of what our problem is, is that we don't acknowledge it, right? Like we, we know that it's there and we let it sit and we let it fester even, and we just keep pushing it away, trying to find other solutions to a problem that don't need other solutions. Right. And so to name that, to say like, it's that I don't have the self-love. It's that I didn't learn these things or it wasn't modeled to me, like not putting the blame or anything like that on ourselves, but saying like, this is about me and this is what I need and this is what I'm going to do for myself, as opposed to relying on those around us to provide that sense of security and safety and um, both emotionally and psychologically and as well as physically. And so I really love that you have the capacity to sort of zoom out of your life and look at it more objectively and say, this is what I can see now looking back on it and having gone through the process that I have to become who I truly am and to recognize that unfortunately we have to have patience and grace sometimes for people who maybe didn't do the right things or the things that should have been done or done them the way that we would have preferred them to be done. Uh, I certainly have had moments in my relationship with my parents where it has been physical or just like verbally too aggressive between all of us. And in the past couple of years, it's become so much more important to me to acknowledge that and do what I can from my side to mute that because it's not necessary and not because I don't want to have a voice in that relationship, but because it doesn't add value. You know, like when I get mad and I get so rage induced that I can't even like tell you what's up and down, like what am I doing for myself? Because when I leave that, it, I don't feel good. I feel pissed that I overreacted that way regardless of why I did it because maybe I'm still mad but like I don't come away from that with this like better sense of self so like I I really appreciate that you articulated sort of the impact of that and how you grappled with that I also wanted to say I think it's fascinating and fucked up because this is how society is that 
you as a black woman had the moment where you thought maybe this type of behavior is specific to my community. It's such a representation, I think, of where we're at right now in society for multiple reasons. I think it's amazing that you share that because I think it's important for people to know that, that we societally have stigmatized relationships between black people, even for black people or people of color. And so it's hard to understand fully because obviously I'm a white chick, but like I really respect that layer because you acknowledging that also forces people like myself and those less educated to understand it more because it goes to show that these stereotypes permeate the communities that they're about as well, you know? And I think that's, that's scary and that's dangerous. Yeah. When we first spoke, you said something that really stood out to me. You referred to your moment of clarity as below rock bottom. So what was the forcing function in that moment that really shook you and opened you up to the possibility of living a better life for yourself? To answer that question, I think it's kind of important to know what led to that moment because, yeah, there was one thing that I read or a series of things that I read on a form that opened me up, but that would have never happened. I would have never gotten to that point if out, without all the other forcing factors that led me to that. The only thing that I could say is there's, there's a couple things to keep in mind about, I guess, my story is that growing up, life was, it was, it was hard for me. Like I felt a lot of the time nobody cared about me. And the only person that I thought did was my mom. Um, and at 13, she passed away. And I was sad way before she passed away. There's just a lot of things that contributed to that. But before, because my mom tried to get me to go to therapy and all that stuff. And my dad basically fought against it. I went to two sessions and that was it. But therapy was just something that we didn't do at all. My dad thought it was like a voodoo science and that nothing, we, nobody needed help. And if you're mentally challenged or ill, like that's what he thought. Like if you're mentally ill, then that's the end all be all for you. Like that's it. Growing up, it was never like figure out your emotions. Let's talk about it. Go through all this stuff. So I stuffed a lot of things growing up. I think it was like 10 or 11 years old. I had my first suicidal thought. I started cutting myself burning myself I would get so sad or angry like anytime I felt an emotion it felt like my head was like just frazzled and fried and I would like punch myself and to the point I got multiple welts or I would make myself have headaches all these things trying and then I got then when my mom passed I really delved hard into alcohol and drugs and that kept on through all of my teenage years just numbing myself because Talking about it was not an option. Talking about your feelings wasn't something that we did. And my dad would always tell me, like, don't tell our business to anybody. Don't tell, be very secretive. So all those things contributed to that. And at 17 years old, I had left my dad's home. Well, it was actually a lady that 
he had met online and we moved to Philadelphia to go live with her because my dad couldn't keep it together with his drug addiction and we lost everything that my mom had built before she passed away. And that lady was so nice before I moved up there. And then the moment we moved up there, she basically was jealous any time that I spent time with my dad. And to me, I was I was going through like meth withdrawal at that time, but nobody knew because I'm really good at hiding my addictions and things like that. And I'm dealing with my own self. Try I have nothing. I don't know anybody in Philadelphia to get any of the things that I want as a crutch. I have no I have none of my crutches anymore. And this lady is terrible to me. And I just remember feeling like she's a gremlin is how I saw her. She was short and I just saw her like a gremlin and at that moment, I was like, I'm leaving. I can't do this. And my dad was waiting for a settlement to come. So I was like, when that settlement comes, he kept saying, Mona, we'll get our own place and everything will be great. I promise it won't be this way. We'll have a new life. So I held on to that as I embarked on this messed up journey. I didn't even know when I left home and I got into my first abusive relationship with a guy and my sister came like a couple months later and she saved me and then she made me go to college and she was like you have to go to college if you want to live here and all this stuff but then this woman that was like my savior in that moment because I was a mess I was a mess and it was the first time I really had seen her since my mom passed away so it was a couple years maybe like four or five years first time really talking to her and after a few months of being there like I was happy there. I was messed up, but I was happy there. And after a few months, she met a guy at a bar and she got pregnant and she moved in with him. And what hurt was that he was well to do. Like he had a farm sitting on acres, a big house. And she moved in there and said, I don't know what you're going to do. And that started a year at 18 years old where I'm bouncing from couch to couch to house to house and I'm basically homeless like I have a peel box because I'm so scared that I'm not gonna have a place to be that I just need somewhere for my mail to go I realized like people are just using me even my other sister it was like I moved in with her and she just wanted to take all the money that I had and for me to be a built-in babysitter and I I just I felt so alone and I met this guy I thought it was great we moved to this rinky-dink basement apartment in Elkton, Maryland. And I'm like, okay, this is, this is good. And it wasn't, it turned into another physically abusive relationship and found out that he was an alcoholic. And I was like, I just can't get away from these people who do drugs, but it was okay. Cause I was like still drinking and doing all these other things. And he supplied me with everything, but it was bad. Like he would pick vacuum cleaners up, like he was going to swing them at me. And then when I would try to leave our house, when we were in an argument, he would grab me and bring me back in, like run outside. He even had his friend like grab me at one point. I just remember this one night I went outside. I was feeling particularly low. I don't know if we just argued before he went to work because he worked at a bar. So he went at night to work. And I just remember sitting in this dark mercury cougar that i had it was all beat up it was i didn't know what i was doing when i bought a car so i bought the one that i wanted as is and it was all messed up and i'm sitting in this car like i have a messed up car i don't know how i'm doing this i feel like i have nobody 
And I just remember it being like the darkest night. Like it was so dark. There were no stars in the sky. Like maybe that means it's cloudy. I don't know. I just remember there was no stars in the sky. And I get a call while I'm sitting in my car just trying to think. And I get a call from my dad. And I think that this is the call because I had been holding on since I left for this. And by this time, I'm like 19. So two years have passed. And I am holding out for like my dad to say, I got this money. Let's go. New life. Hello. And that's not what that call was at all. That call was, Mona, you use me. And that hurt me so bad because I felt like everybody used me. So it was like, why would I use you? Like, I love you, dad. I just left because of that woman. And in that moment, he was just like, it doesn't matter. I'll send you some money to fix your car, but I don't have a daughter anymore. That was it. And the reason I can remember this guy being so dark, there was no stars. I just looked out the window and cried on my car. And it felt like literally there, I was just in black space and I was the only thing there. Like nobody cared. And the people that did care are not people who actually cared. And then I decided in that moment, I'm going to kill myself. And the only thing that really stopped me before was like, I grew up this weird Christian where we didn't believe in like hell, but we believed like there's unforgivable sins. And then if you do those, then you'll get like the death of your soul or something like that. So I was like, yo, I'm not going to even have an afterlife. I'm just going to be gone and dead. And I just don't, I I don't know. I just didn't want to commit an unforgivable sin, but I was like, I just don't care. Like if this is what life is, I don't care. It's like time to really do it. But there was still that little bit of I don't want people to think I'm crazy and so I need to make sure I do this the right way so I went inside and I looked up how to kill yourself and I found I don't even know if it was a a reddit or something it was something that probably doesn't exist anymore because I've tried to find it and I I can't and I went there and this is the moment right this is the moment that forced everything open I'm googling how do you kill yourself and this form pops up there's people talking on it about like how to try to kill yourself. Like I know if you drink bleach, it doesn't kill you now. I thought it would for sure. But on there, I remember that being a thing that's like I tried, I drank a gallon of bleach and I didn't die. Like maybe tweak it this way. And people kept saying like, I tried this and that didn't work. So just tweak it, like maybe do this. But one thing that was a constant on there was everybody was talking about why they wanted to kill themselves and they would tell the person above them on the thread that you deserve to live but here's why I deserve to die and for the first time since my mom died so that was like five years at that point I cried for somebody else and it was all those people and I had been praying that I like, God, please get me to my purpose. So that way I can like, and then just kill me. Like I was, I thought I was making some deal. And then I like, didn't even really believe in God by the time this thing happened. But I was just like, please like help me get to this purpose so I could kill myself. And in that moment, I was like, I, I have to figure out how to live. I have to figure out how to not to just survive life because that's what I had been doing for even before my mom died, since probably like 11, when I could realize I had that first suicidal thought, 
I just didn't want to live. I didn't want to be there, but I had to figure out how to live because like not just live and survive because that was sucky. Like that's excruciating. It's like if life is a ledge, you're holding on by your fingertips and your nails are starting to fall apart. And that's what, that's what it felt like life was for me. And I know that's how it had to have felt for those people based off of how they were talking. And I was just like, you know what? I have to thrive life. I have to love life. I have to love living. So that way when I can come back here, I can say, hey guys, no, we don't have to, you don't have to do this. Here's the way. And I didn't even know what that way would look like, but it started me on my journey. So I, I would say in a moment where I was breaking down, I broke open and became like the phoenix in that moment. I love that. What an incredible response to what I I thought might be an insightful question that prompted a discussion, but like to really hear how you've come to that, how you've gotten to where you are with intention um, through the pain, through the fear, through the really agony of life. And, you know, I think we all experience that at different levels and in different ways. And to go through all of that at such a young age is completely different. It's like the things that we learn in life as adults are powerful and hard and unique, I think, in ways that we don't always anticipate. But to experience so much of an adult life at such an early age and to be forced to take on the role of an adult in the capacity of like your home as well with your mother passing away and your dad not being reliable and the woman that he was choosing to spend his time with not being supportive of you being there, you know, like there's a lot of responsibility that you were left to shoulder without any of the experience to actually know how to do that. So of course you went down the path that you went down because it felt like you were, I mean, I imagine what I'm gathering is that you felt a significant sense of abandonment. Do you agree with that? hundred percent. I definitely had to work through a lot of abandonment issues. Yeah. I mean, do you think that you were feeling that way before your mom passed even, or do you think that it was, that was sort of the catalyst for it? My mom passing away definitely was the straw that broke the camel's back because she was the only person, like I said, that I felt really cared about me, like loved me, loved me like unconditionally. But I think even before then, because see, when I talk about my mom, she's the mom who raised me, but I have a biological mother who who was in jail when I was born. She was a drug addict as well. And all of her kids ended up in foster care. But my dad, when the hospital called him or a social worker called him and let him know that he had a daughter and I was just a product of an affair, basically. And he came and got me like that was there was always this longing of like, why? Like, why not her? And I had met her a few times like snuck around and met her because my dad tried to keep me from her. And I think there was always this little bit of wonder of like, why did, like, why wasn't I good enough to, to have like a regular family or whatever? So maybe that's where like my first abandonment came from is like a baby because I was in the hospital for, I think, like a week before he came to get me. So maybe like on a very, I don't Visceral know, like, level. Yeah, like attachment style type level, like that's where it started. But when my mom passed away, that's 
that's when it really hit me. Just the more you go into your story, the more compelled I am. You know, I think that to see you as you are in the way that you are now and obviously knowing you minimally and digitally, but, you know, I think it's apparent who you are in a lot of ways and what you value and what you care about. Like, it's a testament to our ability to adapt and to change as human beings and to continue to evolve even when things are the shittiest that they have ever been in our lives. And it really makes the case for not allowing ourselves to make excuses for things. And I think that comes with time and energy and effort like anything else. I don't, you know, sometimes I have these moments where I'm like, I just want to have the clarity. Like, I feel like I have the bits and pieces and I know what I should do, but I'm just not doing them. You know, like and you sort of start to guilt yourself. Like I should be doing more. I could be doing more. I could be doing more faster, better or whatever. And I think that's hard because when it's self work like this, it is so deep and it's so many layers that you're sort of like scouring through to find yourself in those moments and to ask, why did I react that way? Or what, compelled me to do these things and why did I make those decisions and what you've established is that sense of self-worth and how much that ties to all of those other things so while a lot of what you experienced was very much out of your control there were things that were within your control but you didn't have the support around you to keep you or direct you on the path that you would have preferred to go down. And so it took hitting these like very low lows to be able to recognize that in yourself, that this wasn't the life you wanted to live. So how did that ultimately lead to your decision to become a quote, transformational tutor? In doing all the work, do you ultimately, especially without a therapist or anything, because I was still in that limiting belief of like, I don't need a therapist. I could do it by myself. Yeah, totally. Yeah, totally. Like, no, I'm, I'm like, I mean, I know they've gone to like all of this schooling and have all this experience, but no, I'm totally fine. I'm very self-sufficient when it comes to mental health. I've gotten this far, haven't I? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So like, inevitably you find people who are in the self-help field, I remember when I figured out what I wanted to do, I was maybe a couple months into doing this, and I was watching a lot of Tony Robbins at the time, and he asked this lady in his audience, you know, what is it that you want to do? And I paused I paused the YouTube video, and I was like, what is it that I want to do? And there was like this moment where I was like, I want to do what he does. I want to be on the stage. I want to help people like that because it ultimately went back to that moment in time where I was like, I have to figure out how to live so I can help them. And then I was like, you get, you can get paid to help people like this. Like, this is awesome. So I started that way. I wanted to be a motivational speaker and then I wanted to be a coach and then it just keeps transforming. But I, as I tried to become a coach, I even started taking like uh, classes for it and coaching people. I was like, with coaching, with being a motivational speaker, with being somebody on the stage, it's like you're almost like the guru and it gives people this this false pedestal that they automatically put you on. Because I had coaches too. I, I put them on a pedestal and then when they when I found out they were human, I was like, 
whoa, why are you coaching me when you're still dealing with that? <laughs> like, because they're coming at it with this, yeah, I've done it all. I'm great. And I'm like, no, what I am is I don't want to be anybody's coach. I don't want to be anybody's guru. I just want to be the person that's like on this journey with you that is maybe one step ahead. And because I took that step already, I can go back and help you figure out what's the best way you take that step. It doesn't have to be the exact way I walk. Like, I just want to, like a tutor, if you're struggling in an area, come in, ask you the questions, maybe say something that gets you to see it better than like the teacher and the teacher's life, right? See it better than the way life is presenting it to you in a new way. So that way you can take that step to get your own answers, your own thing. Like I'm not a guru. I'm just somebody just like you, just like them, but I'm just like one step ahead. I love that. I love the way you describe that. And just in general, you're so articulate about the drivers behind what you're doing. You can tell that you've really thought about this in making the decisions that you've made to get where you are. Like that is such a great story because when you mentioned Tony Robbins, for example, like that actually sort of surprised me a little bit because I think one of the things that comes up for me when I think about Tony Robbins is like a lack of authenticity and not that what he says to some degree isn't valid or valuable, but the showmanship around it, like it's sort of propagandistic. And so to your point, it's like, is it like, what's the line? You know, like you want people to be relatable and you want people to have the credentials. You also need people who remain very, down to earth and humble when they're in those positions like you're talking about because and that's not to say that like somebody like Tony Robbins or otherwise isn't down to earth or humble but I think that because of the showmanship it becomes a lot more about that than it does about like the individuals involved in that and so it becomes a production and in the production you start to lose the intimacy and the intimacy in my opinion is what draws that next step that you're talking about out of us. And I actually did a live coaching session this week with one of my previous guests, Carlin Giovanello, and it was basically like a live therapy session, I'll be honest with you. <laughs> and it was super uncomfortable. But what I appreciate about her coaching style is, I mean, and she's like a professional coach, so she does corporate type things as well as one-on-one -on -one individual type things. And what I appreciate about it is that there's that empathy, there's that awareness, there's that desire to like meet you on your human level, you know, and it's not just about creating the business. And I think that that's what you really like hit the nail on the head about too. Uh, you know, I joke around with people that the podcast was the perfect thing for me to do because I just like, I was writing and I thought, well, I, I talk way more than I write. Could somebody pay me to do this? That would be great. <laughs> you know, like somebody definitely needs to hook me up with a paycheck for this, you know? And so I think that it's great when your passion can meet your financial potential. And I, I'm definitely not there right now. This is still the passion project stage of it. But I think that there's something really empowering knowing that we sort of get guided down these paths of like, even just your sister saying, you like go to college, get an education, do this this way. And to do that is sort of taking the step in the direction that like we've all been told is the direction to go. And I 
certainly value my college education. Like there's absolutely no doubt that it was informative to me. It's actually a really big part of why I can produce my own podcast because I was a media production major. So that worked out great. I finally feel like my super expensive private college education is actually paying me back in some way now, instead of like holding my degree, being like, I'm going to make documentary films at the worst economy ever. It's fine. Don't worry about it, guys. Like, no, that was not the right plan. But 12 years later, here we are. And it's sort of paying off. (laughs) But it's like that part of ourselves is like we convince ourselves that there is a way to do things. And what you've explained is a really great example of how your own personal evolution allowed you to see sort of the direction that you wanted to head in the concept of people like Tony Robbins and then narrowing that scope being like, okay, maybe it's more of just like a coach that I want to be. And then being like, you know what? I don't think it's that either. I think it's more like kind of a snapshot in time is what you're talking about for people almost. Do you agree with that? Like that's a good explanation, but you're not trying to like be there for the long haul necessarily, but because you can say like, I see it from a place where you can't see it from yet. Let me help you get to this place. And then like, you know, fly free little birdie. (laughs) Yeah, exactly like that. Like the last person I, uh, I guess I'm putting in quotes, like coached or or support it. At the end of it, I was like, you have all the tools that you need now to get to whatever level that you want. I'm not trying to be here for the long haul. I'm just here on your journey. So now we can walk side by side instead of you like one step behind me. Yeah, I think that's super cool. I think that's a really unique perspective and something that is a a real value add to that space, too, because I think that there is a place for that. I think that there are people who who need something that's a bit more holistic. And I think there's sort of that span, right? It's like there's therapy for like the really deep seated shit you need to get to. There's coaching that's more sort of forward looking like, what do you want out of your life? And some of that's going to tie back to other shit that you're dealing with. So hopefully you're in therapy. (laughs) And then and then and then like this transformational tutor side of things is sort of maintenance. You know, it's like, what is it that you need to keep focused on or allow yourself to see differently so you can get to that next thing? And so maybe you don't need, you know, a therapy session about it because it's not like that deep of a thing that you're like dealing with in that moment. And it's something that's more, I think when something's more in the present moment and you're trying to make a decision and you're trying to see like what the world has to offer, therapy is not necessarily the right place for that. It might be, I've had moments where it is, but like to have somebody say to you, I've been where you are, let me help you is much different. It's a much more intimate. And I think I mean, quite honestly, less ethical barriers in theory. Like, I mean, and and uh, because like you don't with therapy, like you you try not to form like an emotional relationship with a therapist and, and vice versa. Right. Like, I think as human beings, you do to some extent if you if you have a good relationship with somebody. But with what you do, do you find that there is a layer that really isn't there sort of like it's weird because I was raised Catholic. So the thought that came to mind was like a confessional, like you don't have that wall between you, you know, where it's like you if you're talking to like somebody, you can't see them fully, but like you want somebody to see you fully and you want to see them fully. And that's part of what allows you to do what you do effectively. Like, is that how you see it? Being able to have more of that intimate connection with somebody? Yeah. And a lot of times I feel like It's like holding up a mirror because as I'm talking to people, 
it's like, oh, man, I see so much of you and me. And then they see it and they don't see it in me right away. Like they don't see themselves in me until I'm like, okay, well, tell me some more about this. And then after they get to a point where I feel like, okay, my story might be able to help them see things differently because all I can do is offer people what my experience was. Then it's like, oh, you've been there. And it's like walls that most people kind of put up. They're like down because it's just like a mirror. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're totally right. And I think that that's one of the things that's really interesting about you in general and how our conversations have even started because, you know, we only spoke once before this and I feel like there was something really immediately that drew me into your story, even though there aren't a lot of like explicit parallels or, you know, very similar scenarios. But I think the way that you've explained it in this discussion around how you felt in certain moments were very similar feelings to feelings that I've had in my own life. So not necessarily the same gravity, um, not necessarily the same scenarios, but that feeling of being alone, feeling of I don't have that worthiness. Like I, the fact that I don't have these relationships to the degree of like closeness that I would want means that it must be something about me. And in reality, especially when you hold on to that, I'm learning more and more as a kid, you, and and meaning like through your teens, like when your brain's not fully matured, it's so substantial to your development as a human being. And it's so critical to understand that as an adult, because if we don't, we perpetuate that for not only ourselves, but then like our children or anybody that we're around even. And what I want to do is facilitate better relationships than maybe what I received. And that's not to discredit my parents in particular on some of the things that they've done, but it's that idea of breaking the generational curses. And that if we really look back, our parents' parents treated them much differently than our parents treated us most likely. And then so on and so forth, back and back and back and back and back and back and back. And I always joke around with people that I feel like we're the generation that basically got thrown into all of this trauma that got compounded like smash, 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 you know? And then it's like, and we're here like trying to hold up this massive boulder of like generational trauma. We're it's cool guys. No, don't worry about it. And everybody's like, don't go to therapy. And you're like, but I can't hold it anymore. Like, why am I doing this? Like, why am I doing this? And you sit there and you realize I'm not doing this for myself. I'm doing this because everybody else it isn't. And like, I can, I can talk about it. I can say enough is enough and I can move forward and I don't have to be stuck in this way of thinking or being that everybody else is. Uh, Do you feel like you had a similar sort of moment in your personal evolution where you were like, I just don't have to do this anymore the same way? Yeah, I can't pinpoint directly when, but there was like a time where where I realized my thoughts were what was holding me back. I don't know exactly when I know it was pretty much early on when I realized everything that I had was like a programming 
my low self-esteem was like, oh, it was a product of this, but that's because I chose to internalize it this way. And I realized all these stories that were there and I'm like, oh, you know what? These stories match so many people around me, like the people I attracted, like my friends, they were all doing drugs and things as well. Like they had different experiences, but were dealing with the same, basically stories we were telling ourselves about who we were. And I was just like, I mean, this is why I spent like seven years in isolation working on myself because I was like, I can't hang around people like this because I have to figure out how to change this story in my mind. And I'm not a little kid anymore. Like I can take responsibility for myself. I think that speaks to like such a heightened level of emotional intelligence and self-awareness too, to be able to recognize that, that like you knew inherently, you knew that you deserved better than the life that you were living. And that you had some level of control of that. And it's a hard thing to identify when you're in a scenario like you've described, right? Because it's sort of like you've been plopped into a situation that isn't healthy. You lost a parent very early on who's the person that you were the closest with, right? And then you sort of the subsequent events that happen are the ongoing abuse and people leaving and treating you poorly and acting like you are insignificant in some way. And so it was an acknowledgement that you would no longer stand for it, that you deserved better and you could do better for yourself. A hundred percent. One of the things that you said that I saw on your Instagram, and I really love this, it's you wrote, take action towards your goals, even if it's imperfect action, and leverage a community to help in its attainment when needed. Talk to me about how you've applied this mentality to your your own life. It was something that took a long time to figure this out, and it's still something that I'm working on in pro- still. So I'm working on this now in like a professional way with like sharing my dreams and myself with more people. But before it was very personal of how do I how because my only goal was. I just want to be happy. How do I figure out how to be happy? How do I figure out how to not be depressed and like make sleep my hobby? Like, how do I figure that out? And one of the ways or the things that I learned was as I'm taking these actions towards my goals, one of the biggest things that was stopping me was inaction. I wasn't doing anything because In my life growing up, it was like, if you did something wrong, oh, then you got beat. But if you did something good, then that's how it was supposed to be. So it was like, always do good, always do good. And if I didn't feel like I could do well at something, I didn't do it. So I didn't, I didn't know, like, I can't, I don't know how to do well at like being happy or how to do well at going through finishing college and when this thing is hard for me and I, and it's hard for me to read these books. Like I just didn't know how to do well at these things, but I was lucky that I was reading a lot of books at the time. And it was Jim Rohn that said, if you want to be successful, you just have to take the first step because if you don't, I mean, this is me paraphrasing, but if you don't, then you'll just be where you are. And that hit. Because, you know, I was reading all these books, I was learning all these great things, but I was doing nothing for my personal development. I was doing nothing to, I was not asking anybody for help. So I was lucky I lived with a lady. She's like my second mom. She's so amazing. 
I didn't know I was an auditory learner. Like I'm dyslexic. It's hard for me to, it's really hard for me to read and focus and understand what I'm reading. So it takes me twice as long. I have ADHD. So I like totally get that because I'll read something and then be like, I don't know what I just read because 19 other things were happening in my brain. I know it's not the same, (laughs) but it's like that, that inability to focus without distraction and to really retain the information. I'm a hundred percent with you on that. Like I, I listen to Audible a lot. <laughs> yeah, that's my thing. I'm like, I'm an auditory learner. I didn't know that there were different learning styles either. Yeah, it's not she, that I don't want to read. It's just that I like need a better way to do it. <laughs> yeah, I can pay more attention when I'm hearing it. So this lady I lived with, she would read my textbooks to me. And then we would talk about it because that's how I learn. I learned by listening and talking about it. That's awesome she would, that she facilitated that for you. How did you discover that? Well, I was listening to a lot of audiobooks and listening to talks at that time. Somebody, I don't even know, it might have been a YouTube video. It was describing the different kinds of learning styles and how to tell if that's what you are. And I was like, oh, I definitely am auditory. I can sit, if I go to class and I sit in class and I don't miss a class, I'll pass the test as long as everything that was talked about in class is on the test. And so that's what, so it was like that. But Kathy also was that person that was there as a sound. She was the first person I told my story to. And she was really there to help me facilitate my own personal. So she was like my therapist (laughs) in a sense. But she came through from a really hard background as well. But without that woman, man, and this is where now it's playing in. I realized without that one person and all those people who wrote books, right? That's like the community that helped me. That's great. And then without people right now it's going to be hard for me to build something greater for myself like I can try to do everything like I went to school for communications and marketing so I could do a little bit but I'm not the greatest at selling or doing any of this stuff so if I want to affect people on the level that I want to I have to reach out to people I have to talk to people I have to leverage people in the attainment of my goals because we can't do things by ourselves that's why we're here yeah, we literally can't do anything by ourselves in the grand scheme of things. Like it's, it, and I think that's such a poignant perspective to have. You do need other people, and especially when like you're in the business of connecting, right? And that's something that I've had to get comfortable with as well because. I think one of the challenges when you're in a position like yourself or myself where you're like, okay, my purpose is to connect with people in some way and to create relationships that are impactful. And to do that, you do have to sell yourself, but it also is something that I think challenges us in, at least for me, you don't ever want to feel or come off as inauthentic. And when you have to promote yourself, there's sort of this inherent feeling of shameless plug, here I am, you know, (laughs) and, and it's hard because it takes you to a place where you have to know your worth to be able to sell yourself and you need to be confident in what you're saying to be able to impact people the way that you want to. Was Kathy the woman that whose name you mentioned? Is that what you said her name was? Yeah. So is she the woman that I read from some of your stuff who you referred to as an empathetic witness? Yeah, she's definitely that. Okay. Can you explain what that means and why it's important for each of us to have at least one empathetic witness for our story. Like what have you, you know, you explained sort of that dynamic from 
a familial perspective, right? But like, what do you see an empathetic witness as for somebody who's going on their journey and, and why it's important for us to acknowledge that we need somebody else there with us? I'm not sure exactly what the exact definition of empathetic witness how is. Would you just, how would you define All right, it? Okay. I was like, I read it in a book and I loved the way he described it. But what I took from it is it's somebody who is there for you and they have this judgment-free awareness when they're listening to you. So there's you could tell them anything. They're not going to judge you. And they're not going to like spew out all this advice of how you should change or how you should do this or how you should do that. They literally are just like a mirror. And they, they echo back to you what you're saying. Because for me, for some reason, when I speak the things that happen, at least I found when I... Kathy and I would do these sessions in the garage. It's funny, all this stuff happened in the garage. Um, we would talk, and and she never like I would say things, and I didn't realize how messed up it was or how like severe that thing was until she said it back to me using words that I used, and being that mirror that's echoing back to you what you're saying to yourself and asking some questions to help you go deeper is how I busted through a lot of things because she just sat there and when I cried you know she would tell me some of her stories that matched feelings that I had or how she knew certain things but for the most part she just echoed back to me what I was saying and I think people need that not just because I read it in a book that was just like, people need that to grow. It was like, I wrote, I made that post because I read it in a book and I was like, that's what Kathy was. Like, I didn't even know what it was, but people need that to initiate change into their lives because it's somebody seeing you naked, muddied, bruised, whatever, and saying, you know, it's okay. And not saying like, go get clothes cover it up <laughs> like they're saying okay let's sit here in the darkness with you and through them sitting there and you talking to them and them just reflecting back to you it allows you to be able to see your own light and without if you can't see the light inside of yourself how are you going to go towards that light if you're in a dark place yeah i think that's really profound and I love the idea. I mean, regardless of what the official definition is, I think that that lack of judgment is so critical to our own well-being and understanding of ourselves, because I think a lot of times what ends up happening and why we become so insecure with ourselves is because we fear the judgment, right? And like, we don't want to lose those relationships that we have. So what happens is we end up losing sight of ourselves in the process. And so, you know, it, it, becomes I think apparent the older we get and the more aware we become of ourselves that you have a choice and people don't always have to lead with that and so when you find those people who can be those resources for you and share in those moments without needing anything more than that moment I think sometimes the hard conversations happen when you don't know how to approach it and there's this fear of predetermined judgment that's about to happen. And like you get sort of blocked by that. You become like 
debilitated by somebody else's response. And so then you sort of recoil and take all of that energy. And I think you described this earlier in our conversation. You, you put it all inward. You put all that stress on yourself because you were uncomfortable with what the response could be. And I've been there plenty of times myself. So I totally relate to that. So one of the things that I was thinking about as we've been going through this conversation is like doing this work is super draining and it can be very, very challenging as we confront former versions of ourselves who feel like, at least to me, diff distant memories and from who we know ourselves to be now. Do you see your past as something that was there and you're no longer that person? Or do you feel like all of those experiences and versions of yourself still exist in some way because they have informed so much growth and self-discovery for you? I think, actually, I know 100% that all those versions of myself are still here because they led me to who I am now. Without them... I wouldn't be who I am now. Like one of the major things that I had to work on and heal from, and sometimes still things, little things still pop up. I'm just able to name it and see what it comes up is this little Mona, like five years old, <laughs> like scared in the world that was told all these things. And there's certain ways I react that I'm like, oh, that's just like my inner child. I have to like nurture that and love that now. And now I see now that I've in the last year, I realized the person I wanted to be when I was 19, I got to that person. And now I'm like trying to I've reinvented a new person. So it's like this constant evolution. But now that that chapter is done, it's like, oh, teenage Mona, <laughs> like, <laughs> young adolescent Mona in her early 20s. You're like, Come damn here. it, that's not good either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, But it's like it's like loving all those versions. Yeah. And, and not forgetting them. Yeah, I like that. I like that. It's loving all of those versions. So I feel like, you know, I've definitely been there. I've had those moments where I, I've just felt really locked inside of who I was uh, back then. And then to look back and really have the ability to see yourself more objectively and not as much with like sort of at least that teenage angst and that like cringeworthiness of like, oh, why? Why did I do that? Why did I do that? Why did I say that? Why did I act that way? Like, why? Uh, and I've had plenty of conversations with my wife where she's like, because that's what teenagers do. Like, you know, like that's how they are. And I'm like, I know, but it's like really sad and stupid. And so I do think part of it is is owning that. And I'm still learning to appreciate some of those things because I definitely have a lot of damage from my earlier years as far as like feeling a sense of belonging or not and things like that. So it factors in. But like, I think that your experience and your your path just goes to show that people are resilient and we are not defined by the things which happen to us. We are defined by the things that we choose and our responses to things. And I want to make that with like sort of the asterisks of it doesn't come easily and it requires a lot of intense emotional awareness that is super fucking uncomfortable but it is definitely worth it. And I think when we simplify things like this and say like, you know, the power of positive thinking, do X, Y, Z, do this, do that. Like, yes, a hundred percent, these things are inputs into how you achieve that, but don't discount that this is something that is lifelong and ongoing. If you make the choice to create a better life for yourself, like you don't just 
hope to get to that next mark, you keep asking yourself, what can you do to become the best version of yourself? Well, gang, that's all for this episode of the Who the Fuck podcast. Thanks for listening. And a big thank you to Mona Stevens for sharing her story and her time. Follow Mona on Instagram to learn more about her mission to help others on their path of self-discovery. This episode's Who the Fuck for Cause is in support of the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. If you have the means, visit whothefck.com slash donate to contribute and help people in your local community whose lives have been impacted by suicide. Make sure you subscribe to the Who the Fuck podcast on your preferred platform. And if you like what you hear, go ahead and share the love by reviewing it on Apple Podcasts. Share your email at whothefck.com to receive updates about the podcast, merch, and more. Until next time. Make sure you subscribe to the Who the Fuck podcast on your preferred platform. And if you like what you hear, go ahead and share the love by giving us a review on Apple Podcasts. Share your email at whothefck.com to receive updates about the podcast, merch promos, and more. Until next time. Ever thought about starting your own podcast? Do you have a business or a message you want to share with the world? Well, now it's easier than ever with Electricast. Hi, I'm Mark Netter. And I'm Peter Rafelson. We're the founders of Electricast Media. Whether you want to start a new podcast or already have one, join Electricast to grow your audience, monetize your content, and build your community. With our simple sign-up, you get free promotion, world-class analytics, premium ads, and personal support. Go to Electricast.com and join our community today. Electricast. Transform your influence. Electric acid. Hey, it's Tim from 50 Years of Music with 50-Year-Old White Guys, the comedy podcast you had no idea you needed. Join Ben, Jeff, and me as we continue our musical road trip back through the years and around the globe. See, just when you thought all white guys were like Joe Rogan, you come across three educators trying to remember when we were cool. 50 Years of Music with 50-Year-Old White Guys. Electric Acid.